So, Father, in Jesus' name, we ask uh, that the Spirit of the Lord would just continue to move in this place. We ask for your ministry, Holy Spirit. So, Lord, as I speak and as we look at your word, we pray that you would be probing hearts, convicting hearts, challenging us. Lord, we ask that you would bring healing and restoration. Father, as always, we pray that you would make us better disciples of Jesus. We ask for the power of God to be, to be manifested and released in this region. And we bless your holy name, Jesus. We say you alone receive the glory. In your name we pray. Somebody say amen. John Wesley, in his late years, uh, he was sick and he was unsure as to whether or not he would live. And he kept a diary. You know, that was a journal. That was common to keep a journal. And in a journal, he wrote his own epitaph um, for his tombstone, you know, for when he died, unsure again and whether or not he'd live. And he wrote this, he wrote, here lies the body of John Wesley, a brand plucked out of the burning, a brand plucked out of the burning. If you know the story of John Wesley's life, you'll remember that his, his father, Samuel, was in some financial trouble and was actually in debtor's prison a time or two. And in one instance, he had got out of debtor's prison. His father, Samuel, was actually a pastor. He had got out of debtor's prison, which means that he, he owed some people some money that he couldn't pay back. And someone set fire to their house. Some villagers, they assumed, was, uh, who were bitter and frustrated with the Wesley, set fire to their house. And Samuel Wesley said that he came out of the house and he was looking upstairs. And to his kind of horror, he could hear his five-year-old son, John, crying from the upper room as the house was totally engulfed in flames. And Samuel Wesley, it said, began to pray, Lord, receive my son into the kingdom of heaven tonight. Like he was just totally convinced there's no way that John's escaping. And so he was praying, Lord, receive John into the kingdom tonight. Well, history says that right as the roof collapsed, that John Wesley jumped out of the window, five years old, jumped out of the window into the neighbor's arms, uh, into a neighbor's arms. And for the rest of his life, he would call himself a brand plucked from the fire. He said that over and over. He was a brand plucked from the fire, referring to this instance where he was snatched from the flames of a burning house. But that phrase, a, a brand plucked from the fire, uh, that's, a, that's a prophecy that was actually given to Joshua or Yeshua from our, from our text in Ezra. Yeshua was the high priest as they were trying to rebuild the temple. And um, I want to read to you the prophecy giving to Yeshua that John Wesley was continually kind of claiming over himself when he would call himself a brand plucked from the fire. This is what Zechariah prophesied about Joshua or Yeshua, the high priest, who was partnering with Zerubbabel to rebuild the, the temple. Zechariah said this in chapter 3 of his prophecy. He says, Then he, being the Lord, showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So here we have this kind of Job-like picture where the high priest Joshua is standing before the Lord and Satan, which literally means the accuser, the accuser of the brethren, is also standing before the Lord, accusing Joshua the high priest. And the Lord says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you, is not this a brand plucked from the fire? So again, the image is, the high priest is standing before the Lord, and Satan stands to accuse the high priest. And the Lord rebukes Satan, the accuser, and says, The Lord rebuke you, the Lord who chose Jerusalem. So the Lord chose Jerusalem to be his own. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? 
Now, the imagery being that Joshua the high priest was a captive in Babylon. For 70 years, Israel, Jerusalem, now has been uh, captive in Babylon in a foreign city, essentially slaves um, serving a foreign kingdom. But now God's saying, now I have snatched him from the fire of Babylon and I have planted him again in Jerusalem. And essentially the prophecy is, I didn't take him from, I didn't pluck him from the fires of Babylon and plant him in Jerusalem for you to now destroy him. And mock him and belittle him and accuse him. The imagery is, I delivered him from Babylon to cause him to prosper again in Jerusalem. Whom I deliver, I don't quit on. Whom I deliver, I don't, I don't place, plant now in a new season and just allow the enemy to destroy. And so God's saying, I plucked him, now I'll plant him and I'll cause him to prosper. So when John Wesley, for the entirety of his life, he yokes himself to this prophecy given to Yeshua by saying, I'm a brand plucked from the fire. John Wesley is saying, God didn't deliver me from a house that was burning and falling flat to allow me to be destroyed by the enemy. God delivered me from the flame to cause me to carry his kingdom to the ends of the earth. And so in the prophecy, there is a sense in which John Wesley and Joshua, Yeshua, were reminded again that God is our deliverer, our sustainer. He has ordained the steps of our lives and that there's purpose and call on every son and daughter of God who's been snatched from the hands of hell. So for all of John Wesley's life, he was going, uh, you know, the, the fire of, of John Wesley was mocked. John Wesley was belittled. John Wesley was at times run out of cities for all of his life in the fire of persecution and the fire of trial as he suffered from sickness or he wasn't necessarily popular in the cultural realm. John Wesley reminded his heart, I am a brand plucked by fire, plucked from the flames of hell. And so much so that when John Wesley is preparing for death, he writes his own, you know, kind of end of life statement and says, John Wesley a brand plucked from the fire. So as we turn to look at Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel again and their great task, we need to remember that they were snatched from Babylon. Cyrus says, you can leave Babylon and return to Jerusalem. Go rebuild the Temple of Solomon. But the Temple of Solomon, again, was extravagant and beautiful and, and beyond their wildest dreams. They didn't have the resources or the talents or the gifts. And so they had this great task of trying to rebuild Solomon's work. And we read in Ezra chapter 4, chapter 3 and 4, that the people had become discouraged. Do you remember the text said that the enemies of the people of God had bribed men, had hired men to frustrate their plans, and they had become discouraged, and they quit building. So now as we move to Ezra 5, we're reading about the time in which the people of God laid the foundation of the temple, but no one has worked on the temple for over 10 years because of discouragement, because of frustration. So let's read God's solution, God's answer to frustration and fear and discouragement that thwarts the people of God in the place of their soul. They've become so discouraged in the place of their souls that they've quit. And every person of God has to deal with that at some time or another. 
when you feel so discouraged and so frustrated that all you want to do is just throw up your hands and walk away. We all, we all have to endure through those seasons. That's the moment that we're reading of here. They've become so frustrated, they just throw up their hands. This is God's solution, chapter 5 of Ezra. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God, of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtai, and Yeshua, the son of Jehozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah prophesied to the Jews. They arose and began to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At that same time, Tetanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bazoni and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked him this, What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop. They did not stop until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by the letter concerning it. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah prophesied in the name of the God of Israel. Again, Ezra 4.4, the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. And so now we have a people who have a call. They're very sure about what they're doing in Jerusalem. They're supposed to be rebuilding the temple. In the same sense, the church in our day is supposed to be bringing the kingdom. They know their call, but out of discouragement and fear and anxiety, they quit building. They become crippled. They become afraid. And we read, our text opens with a wonderful word, now. And so, after 10 years of discouragement, now God intends to deliver these people from bondage, fear, and anxiety, the grip of the enemy on their soul, and God intends to do it how? He sends prophets. Two prophets, not just one. Two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. I think two prophets is significant. Uh, there's an echo or a repetition when a prophetic word is released two times. Remember when Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dreams about the famine, Pharaoh dreamed of seven lean cows who ate, who essentially uh, conquered seven fat cows, and then he dreamed that there were seven kind of sick uh, ears of corn that overcame seven uh, fat ears of corn, and the word was that there would be seven years of famine that would outweigh or overcome seven years of prosperity. And then, and then Joseph said this to Pharaoh, the reason, Genesis 41 verse 32, the reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. When we think of John's vision and revelation, we remember there were two witnesses in the end times. And so we're, we're also told in the Old Testament, and it's echoed in the New Testament, that, that, a, that, a, that a word should be established by two or three witnesses. So we see a repetition as two prophets release uh, a word in unison. And we learn kind of this principle from Joseph that when it comes twice, it's sure, it's sure to happen. And so God is saying to the people in Jerusalem now who are discouraged, from two prophets, from the mouth of two witnesses, 
I will use you to rebuild the temple. There was confirmation. So the people of God have grown weary, frustrated. And here, you, we, we need a little bit of biblical literacy. It re- just really helps. Okay, and so Haggai and Zechariah are contemporaries, right? They live in the same time as, as Joshua and Zerubbabel who are rebuilding the temple. And so when we read Haggai chapter 1, we're going to find some context for our passage today in Ezra chapter 5. We're talking about the same time period. Does that make sense? Two different books of scripture, but the same time period. So I want to read to you from Haggai chapter 1. And this is going to give us context for what's happening in Ezra chapter 5. It says, Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. And this is what Haggai said. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? Speaking of the temple. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but you're always cold. There's no one who is warm. He who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. We call that having a hole in your pocket. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it that I may be glorified, says the Lord. What we learn from context here is that now for over 10 years, the people who were called to build the temple, they laid the foundation, and then they've quit. So we know they're afraid of the people in the land. We know they're discouraged. And then what Haggai just told us through this prophecy is that they also lack the favor and the blessing of the Lord. And so they've all gone, gone their own way. They're building their own houses. They're sowing their own seed. They're building their own businesses. They're hoping to make a home in the land. But everything they do fails to prosper. They sow an abundance of seed and they reap very little. They have holes in their pockets. And God says, why do you live in paneled houses And the house of God is yet to be built. So again, they're discouraged, they're anxious, they're fearful, and they are wrestling with with poverty, essentially. Like they, they cannot get on top. And God says, it's time to rebuild the temple. So God, again, sends these two witnesses, these two prophets... Haggai and Zechariah with echoing words. They're going to call Zerubbabel and Joshua, Yeshua, to get their butts back to work. They have to leave discouragement and fear behind and put their hand to the plow. And again, there are times in the life of every church and every believer where we need to hear this kind of prophetic word. Get back to work. Don't quit on your call. Now quickly... I repent of using that word quickly. We're not going to do this quickly, okay? (laughs) Let Let me examine just for a moment kind of some of the overarching words that these two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, gave to these two men, Zerubbabel the governor and Joshua the high priest. You guys good with that? We're going to read what were the prophecies that were prophesied. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6 through 7. You've heard this scripture all of your life. Let's put it in a little bit of context today, okay? Zechariah 4, verse 6 through 7. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, 
So we rule again as the governor. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid, amid shouts of grace, grace to it. So Zechariah says to Zerubbabel, you are called to build this temple. You are discouraged. You're afraid. You feel under-resourced. You feel frustrated. But God says to you today, not by might, nor by power. In other words, God is saying to Zerubbabel, I have not asked you to be sufficient in and of yourself. I haven't asked you to be strong enough. I haven't asked you to be wise enough. I haven't asked you to, in and of your own being, have enough money and have enough resources, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. In other words, to Zerubbabel, I am in your midst. Stop looking at your own hands and start looking to my presence and my power to accomplish this task. Zerubbabel, you're not alone. You're not in charge. I'm your help. I'm your strength. Let's look at what Haggai says to Zerubbabel. What does the prophet Haggai say to Zerubbabel? Again, Zerubbabel is the governor appointed by Cyrus. I told you before that Zerubbabel is in the lineage of Jesus. And so he is um, a son of David. And a rightful heir to the throne. But he's not the king of Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem is still under the the control of the Persians. So Jeremiah prophesied concerning the last king of Judah. Jeremiah prophesied to the last king of Judah. Who would have been Zerubbabel's ancestor. Before Babylon came and captured Jerusalem. And this is what Jeremiah said to Coniah. Who again was the last king of Jerusalem. And who was the ancestor of Zerubbabel. Jeremiah said to Coniah, As I live, declares the Lord, Though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Were the signet ring on my right hand, Yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, Into the hand of those of whom you are afraid, Even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, And into the hand of the Chaldeans. So the, the prophecy was always that there would be a son of David on the throne forever. But now Coniah, the last son of David in Jerusalem, God says to Coniah, though you were a signet ring in my right hand, though you were my sign of authority, I take you off today and I throw you away and I give you into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And so Zerubbabel's ancestor was chosen of God, but God said to him, no more, I I cast you off. But now, watch what Haggai is going to say to Zerubbabel in chapter 2, verse 23. So I think it's very likely that Zerubbabel knew the word of Jeremiah, that that Coniah had been rejected, that his lineage had been rejected. But now God will say through Haggai, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shittai, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So the Lord said through Jeremiah, I threw off your, your great-grandfather, Coniah, from my hand, but now Zerubbabel I place back on my finger. So in the, I think in the place of Zerubbabel's soul, there is this feeling of rejection, 
of condemnation, of not being good enough. And God says through Haggai, God has chosen you, placed you on his right hand. You are his signet ring of authority. And so there's this sense in which Haggai is saying to Zerubbabel, get up. You've not been called to lay down forever. God has plans to use you. So the twin prophets, Zechariah and Haggai, say to Zerubbabel, not by your strength, but God's. God's strength. And then they say, even though your ancestors were rejected, God says today, I've chosen you. Let's look at what Zechariah says to Joshua again. From Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1 through 5, Joshua being the high priest. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed them with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Now I think this is very clear that Zechariah is saying that Joshua the high priest is experiencing a high level of spiritual warfare. That Satan is accusing him. That Satan is mustering up all of his energy to try to discourage Joshua from fulfilling his call. It's very clear that that Joshua has been wrestling in the place of his soul with the tactics of hell. Satan has accused Joshua to God. And and the accusation obviously has something to do with shame and guilt. Right? Because because it, it says that Joshua was clothed in filthy garments. And God says, and this is also, this obviously echoes the the gospel presentation. But God says to Joshua, take off your filthy garments. We're going to put on you pure vestments. Pure vestments being being the the sign, uh, the vestments were what the priest wore. And so he's leaving the place of shame and condemnation. And he's being called a priest of God and clothed with pure holy vestments, and God is saying to Joshua, you are not to live in condemnation and shame and guilt. You are to stand on your feet and to minister before me. So again, for over 10 years, they quit building. The scripture says in Ezra chapter 5, God raised up two prophets. And we just read several of the words that these two prophets released, essentially saying to Zerubbabel, the governor, And to Yeshua, the high priest, get up and get back to building. God has chosen you. God has anointed you. I don't care about how strong you feel or how weak you feel. God will be your strength. God will be your present help. Get up. And so the scripture told us in Ezra chapter 5, they did just that. They started to build again. Our text says that they began to rebuild. And then the text says that they began to rebuild And the prophets were with them. I think it's impossible to think about this task without thinking of Aaron and her holding up the hands of Moses, right? 
that there is an element of spiritual warfare. There's an element of assault from hell, of discouragement, again, fear, that is trying to cripple the people of God. And so as they begin to build, God has the prophets stay with them and hold their arms up. So I can imagine there are days where Zerubbabel feels tired and frustrated and the plans aren't working and the prophets are still standing there saying, don't quit. There are days when Yeshua just feels worn out. Just so tired of this. I'm frustrated. No one listens. And Haggai says, it's not your strength. This is the Lord's work. And so throughout their work, as they continue to fulfill the call of God on their lives to rebuild the temple, God has given them this unique strength. Prophets. To stand and remind them of the word of the Lord. The scripture says that as they began to build again, inspectors came. Now, these inspectors don't seem to have any evil intention. They seem to just be doing their job. And so the inspectors come. It's kind of like what you would see in our day, right? You need a building permit. Some of you guys try to do stuff without a building permit. That's going to fall. I'm not coming in your house. The inspectors come, and essentially, it's kind of like they're saying, do you, ha- do you have a permit for this building? Who told you to keep building? And the people respond, Cyrus told us to build, so we're just doing it. We're just building. And this church, this is an opportunity for the people of God to quit again. This is an hour where they could start biting their nails and saying, all the inspectors are going to go back to the Persian kings. All the inspectors are going to, they're going to write to the kings, and then the kings are going to tell us just to quit. And everything we're doing right now is a waste. We should just, just pack it up. This is an hour and an opportunity for them to repeat the pattern of being a quitter on God's intention and plan. But again, the, the text wants us to know, but the difference is, now they have the prophets and the word of the Lord. And they conquered the trial. The scripture says that they didn't quit building. They essentially said to the inspectors, go ahead and write to the king. We'll just keep building and wait to hear. So rather than stopping and waiting for a response from the king, they build through. They just keep pressing. They keep working. They experience temptation to give in, but now they're upheld by the word of the Lord. And Ezra said that, the scripture said, remember, that God's eye was on them. The inspectors came. They got nervous. They were worried that that maybe the, the Persian kings would shut things down. But God's eye was on them. God's attention. They had God's full attention. They knew now that they weren't to work in their own strength, but God's. God saw this, this opportunity for the enemy to halt his work. So they refused to panic because God saw. And we've got to learn this lesson too. That there, Again, there are moments in your Christian life, there are moments where you'll be frustrated, there are moments maybe even in your work where you feel like you're doing what God has called you to do, but there's some, some opposition that arises and you want to quit. We need to learn to allow our first response to be God knows. God God saw this before it even came. No reason to panic. God's eyes are on us forever. He will never leave us nor forsake us. 
If I ascend to the heights or make my bed in the depths of Sheol, he's there. So Ezra says, when they had opportunity to quit, they remembered God's eye was on them. Now, let's take a moment as we work to our conclusion here to ask the question, what are the implications of this passage of Scripture for us today? So, again, in this hour, when they quit, when they were scared, when they were frustrated, when they were struggling, God's answer to their frustration was prophets who prophesy. I think we should remember, in this light, why Paul says to the Corinthian church, above all the gifts of the Spirit, you should desire prophecy. 1 Corinthians 14.1, pursue love, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. That's a command of Scripture. Guys, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. The plain teaching of the New Testament is that the saints should desire the gifts of the Spirit and especially prophecy because prophecy is unique in its ability to edify. Prophecy has the unique ability to keep us moving. When, when we get stuck in the mud of spiritual warfare, when you're stuck in the mud with frustration, one word from the Lord can, can like a piece of lumber, prop you out of that mud. Joshua felt the full weight of Satan's accusation, the full weight of spiritual warfare. And God says to Joshua, you will be clothed in pure vestments. You will conquer. You will overcome. The, 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 again, the jack that got Joshua out of his slumber was the prophetic word. New Testament teaches that the church still needs this gift and needs it desperately. It does say, the New Testament does teach that prophecy and tongues and gifts of healing will cease when Jesus returns. In other words, when Jesus returns and and disease is done away with, then you'll no longer need to pray for the sick. But in the meantime, Paul says... Church, now again, think about the Corinthian church. They were, they were chaotic. They had no organization. They were propping up their spiritual gifts and ego. And it would have been really easy for Paul to say to the Corinthians, y'all, y'all aren't allowed to prophesy anymore. You are not allowed to, no more gifts of the Spirit for you. You're crazy. You're charismaniacs. We're done with it. Right? And that's pretty much what the West has said. You got crazy people, just stop. But Paul doesn't say, just quit on the gifts of the Spirit. Rather, he says, find balance and order while you pursue the gift. And so, I don't have a better way to say this, so forgive me. Um, Balance in regards to the gifts of the Spirit, forgive me for using this language, is never sexy. Right? We, we We want the man to stand up He's got to be sweating. If he's not sweating, he's not anointed. Um, I'd like a little more AC, please. Um, We want the man to stand up with the rag, right, the the thing, and he's got to wave and shout, maybe, maybe pop somebody. 
We want it, we want it, we want it dramatic. Balance is, is never particularly attractive, but balance is holy. And balance actually doesn't mean to get on your heels. So many times I think people say, we want to be balanced in regards to the gifts of the Spirit, and that means that we'll never really use them unless we're pressed. Balance doesn't mean you lean back. That's actually out of balance. Balance means you get your grip so that you can ride the bike faster. Okay, so when I say we want to be balanced in regards to the gifts of the Spirit, we want to honor the full New Testament presentation of how we should handle prophecy. I don't mean you better never give a prophetic word unless you have an angelic vision and you're really sure that you're sure that you're sure. What I mean is let's lean into the gift of prophecy because we need it, but let's make sure that we use it in a way that honors the Lord. And so some will say, yeah, you guys, you charismatics talk about prophecy, but you got people acting crazy and prophesying you're all going to be rich and you're all poor anyway. And so the, the argument is, if there are people who abuse the gift, then no one should use it. And our response would be, just because there's counterfeit and abuse doesn't mean that we're given the permission to neglect the plain teaching of 1 Corinthians. There was counterfeit and abuse in the Corinthian church. And the response from Paul was, get your balance right. And so Paul says in Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 20, do not despise prophecy. Why? Because there are seasons when you are stuck in the mud and you need it. You need a man or a woman of God to look you in the eye and say, thus saith the Lord. Don't quit. Keep pressing. Keep pushing. The church needs the prophetic gift. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Don't despise prophecies, but test them. Test them means don't just receive everything that anyone says as being from the Lord. That's a quick way to end up in some spiritual abuse. But you're to test it. You're to discern. God, is this you? And if the word is from the Lord, it should ring true in your spirit. But then notice what Paul says. Hold fast to what is good. Don't despise it. Test it. But when you test it and it passed the test, hold fast to it. Mary stored up the word of the Lord in her heart. Because, Zerubbabel, there's days coming when all of hell will come against you and you'll have to remember what the word of the Lord was. From a very practical standpoint, I think any time the church begins to reject the gifts of the Spirit, in particular, when the church begins to say, we don't want anything to do with prophecy ever again, whether they do this consciously or not, sooner or later, they will, they will all, for all practical reasons, begin to exist as if God's not in their midst at all. And there's something about a word from the Lord. Someone tapping you on the shoulder and just saying, man, I don't know why, but I feel like God's asking me to share this with you. And them sharing the word and you going, oh, that was the Lord. There's something about that that reminds us that God is in our midst. We need to be reminded that we are not in this room alone today. But that the Holy Spirit and all of his power and his strength and his attributes, his wisdom, his omniscience, he is in the room with us. And when the church quits on the gifts of the Spirit, they will subtly settle into a posture which says, God is not really here. 
never confess that with their mouth, but they'll confess it with their actions. And they slide, for all practical means, into a form of deism. Deism, kind of the idea that God wound up the clock and just let it go. And that's kind of what we do in our day. We say that God wound up the clock when the scriptures were written, and now he's just letting the thing go. And we're just supposed to see what happens, what shakes out. Again, that is never, never the presentation of the New Testament. The strength of the church, the secret of the church, the gift of the church, is the Holy Ghost in our midst. We even see that the principle of two witnesses in the test, and there's two prophets that come forward. The idea here is that we're not, the church is not just looking for the, the next great prophet to stand and to direct us all, right? We're not, we're not looking for the next great man sweating in his five piece, pointing at us all, telling us what to do, but that the church as a whole, we are a holy priesthood. In the church as a whole, we have access to the holy place because of the blood of the Lamb. And we are to, we are to ask God for His voice. We don't, we don't prop one person or a couple people up and say, there are prophets, although there are some who have a prophetic gift. We, we all attempt to hear from God and we discern, we submit things. And so uh, we, we don't want to slide into any kind of spiritual abuse where one man declares that thus saith the Lord, then everyone else has to obey. That thus saith the Lord usually has something to do like, thus saith the Lord, you owe me $200,000. Um, we, we want to embrace the concept that there are prophets in the church. There are people who are gifted in the prophetic, but we all have access to God's spirit and we all should be discerning. Okay, in conclusion, worship team, come for me. Where does that leave us? Where does this passage of Scripture leave us? It leaves us with an acknowledgement that we exist in this life in spiritual warfare. We live in war. We have a call, just like these people, to bring God's kingdom and to build the church, to make disciples. We have a call, but there is, in the realm of the Spirit a demonic assignment to discourage you, to cripple you with fear, to frustrate you. One of the, forgive me, the stupid things about our Western religious realm is that we we all pretend like the spiritual realm doesn't exist. And it, it just doesn't make sense. I don't know how you read this and then go, oh, the demons must now have decided to leave us alone. That would be nice. So we exist in a realm of spiritual warfare with a call. Each of us who belong to Christ, you've been plucked from the fire. There is a call on your life. The enemy is going to attempt to discourage you for the rest of your life. God's gift to us to press through the discouragement is the prophetic word. times Christians will get stuck Christians will quit churches will quit the fiery darts of the enemy that was Paul's language in Ephesians chapter 6 will pierce us and we lay down and we need to be a church and a people who surround one another and say God we need to hear your word 
We need to be a people who pursue the prophetic gift so that when I'm discouraged and when I'm frustrated and when I'm tired, someone picks up the phone and calls me and says, I don't know why, but I just feel like God is saying you need to keep pressing. I don't know why, but I feel like God is saying that you are in a season of discouragement, but the Lord's saying today that he's going to release a fresh anointing on your life. Those words bring liberation and freedom and strength. We don't want to be charismaniacs, but by God, we do want to be charismatics, okay? In light of that, uh, one of the brothers... Um, shared a word with me this morning, a prophetic word he felt like was prophetic from the Lord, and it, and it seemed to ring, ring true in my heart that and his word was that there, there are some here who are captured by a spirit of offense. You, you've become offended. Someone's wronged you. Someone, in, in, maybe in a business transaction or a relational transaction, someone has offended you, and you've now become gripped by offense, and that we need to ask the Lord to give us the strength to forgive this morning. Jesus says we should forgive as we're forgiven. That so many times in the Christian life, offense actually becomes a little cage that you live in. And until you get to the place where you say, this person owes me nothing, I release them totally. The enemy has a nice little grip on us. So the word that came forward this morning was that we need to take the time to forgive. And maybe it would be healthy for all of us to say this morning, Lord, is there anyone... Who I've, who I've yet to forgive. Is there anyone that I need to release this morning? So if you want to stand to your feet, we'll get ready to pray. Altar team, will you guys get in place? Let's, let's start there. I'm going to ask the team to sing for a minute. I want us to ask the Lord, Lord, in any way, am I stuck in the mud? In any way, am I living in offense? Am I living in this kind of stress and anxiety? Am I stuck? And as we begin to pray, I want each of you to pray, Lord, speak to me. If you feel like, man, I am stuck, man, I do need to forgive, I want to ask you to come to the altar. Because as we worship and pray, I want to ask you to come. We want to lay hands on you and believe that the power of the Spirit is here to deliver. So come on, sing for us.